0: This is Mountaineer Farms. This shows Mr. Ripley.
1: It's Claremont is my first name. Uh, Ms. Ripley.
0: My bad. That's okay.
2: That All right, the time. Ms.
0: Ripley, we'll hear from you.
1: Good morning. May it please Court. I'm Claremont Ripley with my co-counsel, Carol Brook, on behalf of the appellant, Anthony Vines. This case is about a series of actions that Mr. Vines's former employer, Mount Air Farms, took against him after he made safety complaints. Mr. Vines worked in Mount Air's poultry processing facility, where he experienced several negative medical side effects from dry ice exposure back in 2019. He brought that to Mount Air and to North Carolina OSHA's attention. Mr. Vines will tell anyone that he is very concerned about safety, safety first. And as it turned out, his complaints were warranted because the CO2 levels from the dry ice were over the legal safe limit. Mr. Vines alleges that after he made those complaints, Mount Air took multiple adverse actions against him and that those actions violated North Carolina's Retaliatory Employment Discrimination Act or RETA. He also alleges that his termination was a wrongful termination in violation of public policy. Mount Air move was granted summary judgment on both claims. But as the moving party, in order for Mount Air to be entitled to summary judgment, they must either establish that there are no genuine issues of disputed fact with respect to Mr. Bynes's prima facie Rita case, or they must conclusively establish all elements of the Rita affirmative defense. They failed to do either, which is why we're asking that you reverse. Um, first, with respect to his prima facie case, we believe that Judge Boyle was correct, that Mr. Vines established the elements for the purposes of summary judgment, and Malnair does not appear to dispute that. So I'm going to go ahead and turn to the affirmative
3: defense. Um ask you about that. Under Rita, you know, under McDonnell Douglas with this burden shifting, we say you can show a prima facie case. And the employer states some reasons and then the employee can show that those reasons were pretext and really this was discriminatory, retaliatory. Under Rita, when there's not this burden shifting, you know, where the, the plaintiff has to prove, be able to prove his case, and then the defendant can prove an affirmative defense. Does the the first step require more than just a sort of prima facie showing? Does it require evidence that the plaintiff the jury could find in the plaintiff's favor? No, I don't believe so. Certainly not
1: for Mr. Vines as the non moving party at summary judgment.
3: The um I guess I'm wondering just you know, the district court did the back and forth. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about whether it seemed like maybe the burden was consistent with Rita, but it, he still did this back and forth thing where uh, it was at the third step that the district court considered whether Mr. Vines had proved, would be able to show that the actions were retaliatory, um, not just they're close in time. But like, would he actually be able to show, in fact, that that's, why they did what they did. Is, is that part of the, that's part of his initial burden, right? You can't win under the statute unless you can show that, you know, this adverse action happened and it was retaliation.
1: Correct. I mean, Mr. Vines bears the ultimate burden of showing that the actions were retaliatory. The distinction that, that we think is important between the Donald Douglas pretext framework and what Rita calls for is what the defendant's burden is at the second stage before we get to that third stage so under the plain language of rita's affirmative defense it's a burden of persuasion on the
3: defendant yeah i'm just not sure that there's a third stage i guess is my point the parties do it that way in their brief and mm-hmm. I, I asked it because you just said there's no dispute that we've established the prima facie case i'm going to move to the affirmative defense but mountain air they do have in their brief they dispute that there's evidence this was retaliatory right. They just do it under a like third step approach, which I, again, it's just kind of a procedural question as whether the third step is really part of the first step.
1: I mean, I think in this case where Mr. Vines does have evidence that would allow a jury to conclude it's retaliatory. Regardless of where you evaluate
3: it, it should be reaching the jury. Error response that i have tied up on some procedural <laughs> nitty-gritty that doesn't actually affect the outcome of your case, but but I mean we are focusing on I'm the procedure serious. here. That is that is
1: where we think the the real error is that the that the lower court evaluated that that the lower court moved too quickly to um, evaluating whether this was really retaliation because Mount Air never presented evidence that either of its purported Legitimate reasons for terminating Vines were its real reasons. If you if you look closely at their summary judgment briefing, they present them as um, as excuses. As these are reasons we could have fired him, but they don't present evidence that those are the reasons they did terminate Mr. Vines. Um, those two reasons presented are that he had used up all of his leave, or that they couldn't accommodate his light duty. And um, as we detail
0: in the even brief- though this is more of a McDonald Douglas. Terminology. What? Why is that pretext? And that's your burden to show it's pretext.
1: Well, it's our burden to show it's pretext if we use McDonnell Douglas. If if we're just going by the plain language of Rita, it is
0: real, there. Is there any real difference between that and, and the plaintiff having the ultimate burden of proof? I mean, if the defendant comes forth and has uh, rationales for its actions. What's the district court to do at that point? Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't the plaintiff have to then come forward to, uh, disprove what the defendant has, has set out?
1: I think the difference, and this, this might go back and answer your question as well, Judge Russing, Judge Rushing, excuse me, but the difference is that Mount Air is, is the party that moved for summary judgment. And if we interpret the RITA defense as an affirmative defense, then as the moving party, they bear the burden of establishing each element of that affirmative defense to be entitled to summary judgment. And if they have failed to show, to persuade the court, that either of those were its real reason for terminating Mr. Vines, then summary judgment is not appropriate, and this should go to a jury. And that is who Mr. Vines should be presenting his facts to to persuade the jury that it was actually retaliatory. Does that answer the question you were asking?
0: I understand, I understand what you've said. <laughs>
1: um, the the other thing that um, that I think is, is important to look at is that the North Carolina Supreme Court has not used the pretext framework for interpreting Rita. Um, the lower court did use it, and Mount Air would like you all to use it, but we don't think it is appropriate. In Ables v. Renfro in 1993, the North Carolina Supreme Court interpreted a very similar statute to Rita, the predecessor, um, which was about retaliation for workers' comp complaints. Rita expanded that one a little bit. But in Ables, the court wrote, defendants suggest that this court adopt the complicated analysis used in federal employment discrimination cases as a model for how retaliatory discharge cases based upon the filing of a workers' comp claim should be developed in our North Carolina courts. We declined to do so. Instead, we rely on the terms of the statute itself to determine what showing is necessary. So we think that that right there is controlling, and that the North Carolina Supreme Court is unlikely to look to McDonnell Douglas instead of the plain language of the statute.
0: So the defendant showed there was quite a bit of absenteeism and that there was no light duty job that it could give to Mr. Vines. Why isn't that sufficient?
1: Well, they, Mr. Vines was absent a good bit, Um, and the record shows that the reason for his absence was actually often because of that dry ice exposure and his medical side effects, and then later because of his back injury that he sustained at work on March 11th. But the defendant does not actually argue that it's affirmative defense or it's uh, purported legitimate reason for terminating vines was his absenteeism. They they actually say the opposite. Um I just wrote down the site. I think it's page one one zero seven in the record is where they say that's not the reason they fired him. So he did not have a duty either under either if we're using the what I say is the proper Rita framework or under McDonnell Douglas to disprove that because Mount Air never claimed it was because of his absences. They did claim
2: okay. Ms. Ripley? Yes. Ms. Ripley, yeah. What about though their claim that they did not have available light duty jobs? That seems to have gone unanswered in this litigation and why wouldn't that be enough? (laughs) Um, I believe we
1: did respond to that in our brief and actually directed the court to the testimony of um, Mount Air's corporate designee, Ms. Webster, where she explained, we don't call it light duty, we call it restricted duty. But we do have restricted duty jobs, and they they offer the restricted duty jobs. You said that
0: was reserved for workers' complex.
2: Right. For, people for people with people a workplace. injury on the job. I'm,
1: I'm sorry. You two spoke at the same time. Can you repeat yourself, Judge Keenan?
2: No, that's okay. Go ahead. Please answer.
1: Uh, Mr. Vines needed the light duty because of the back injury that he got on March 11th on the job. Mount Air did not send him to their occupational health clinic which is where the workers' comp process has started. So the workers' comp process was never triggered in this case because he didn't know about his workers' comp rights. But that does not mean that he shouldn't have been given light duty. Ms. Webster testified that he should have been. They didn't have any light duty. But they were parsing words there, I believe, Your Honor. They said, we have restricted duty. We don't call it light duty. And Mr. Vines also testified that there were a handful of jobs he had done that he could do that he considered light duty. Including the permanent grader position where you just stand on the poultry processing line and the chicken passes you by and you're doing quality control and that dry ice packing position. All he wanted was proper safety equipment so he could do that. He said
3: that was light duty. What he was needed light duty, right? Because of his, um, neuropathy, right? Not, not because of the back injury. No, your honor. He had the, the neuropathy he had all along. He did not need the light duty
1: until after that back injury on March
3: 11th. So, so he was capable of doing the job that he had been relocated to. That job wasn't too difficult for him because he didn't need a special light duty job because of the neuropathy. So this isn't really in the record. So I'm not sure quite how to answer it. Well, so yeah, don't go outside <laughs> the record. Absolutely.
1: But, but what is in the record is that, that Malnair believed he needed an easier job, a light duty job because of his neuropathy. And they put that in a memo. He, we should put him on a permanent greater position because he needs a light duty job. And instead they put him on a different job on March 11th, which was not light duty, which was picking up boxes of um, chicken quarters and moving them somewhere else, and that is where he injured his back.
0: And you take the rest of your time here to address this alternate ruling of the district court on the suspension claim that it was without jurisdiction, because I don't think you addressed that at all.
1: I, I, I we're talking about the footnote that if if we're left with just suspension,
0: right. then
1: the court doesn't have jurisdiction. Um, you're right; we did not address. Juris- Directly address that in our briefing because we believe that, um, that Mount Air is not entitled to its affirmative defense on the terminations either. Um, if, if you were to only reverse with respect to the first three adverse actions, the disciplinary, um, the disciplinary warning, the suspension, so and the retaliatory we relocation.
0: We affirm on the suspension is left.
1: Um,
0: I then, think you've challenged any of the factual conclusions that the district court made in that regard.
1: Well, this with regard to the suspension, there's ample evidence in the record that he was in fact suspended. I mean there is there's okay, Ms.
2: Ripley, Ms. Ripley, I think though that when you're answering uh the question it would be helpful for us to know how the two day suspension could yield uh, meet the diversity threshold of $75,000? dollars I'm not sure if it would
1: your honor um, we haven't calculated damages independently just based on that suspension because uh, we believe there's evidence to support all of the disciplinary action or all of the retaliatory actions including the termination um, but but if we were left with just the suspension then we um, there might not be diversity. I mean, we, we initiated this action in state court. It was, it was defendants who removed it. Um, and, and I mean, I guess we would be left going back to state court, which would be unfortunate because Mr. Vines initiated this action back in 2019 as a, as a pro se in the administrative process. I'm well over my time, but I'm and happy to keep answering. questions.
0: Time. Okay. Uh, Ms. Dormany. <clears throat>
4: Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Betsy Dormany, and I'm appearing today on behalf of Mount Air Farms. Uh, first of all, I know I need hardly remind this panel that you have the power to affirm a district court's decision for any reason that is supported in the record. It doesn't have to be because of the particular analysis that the judge uh, below gave, although I do have to say, at least standing here as appellant, certainly, that I think Judge Boyle is absolutely right in this case. I disagree with um, my learned counsel uh, on the question of whether we concede that Vines made out his prima facie case of discrimination. do not think so, but I'm an advocate, and when I wrote my motion for summary judgment, I said he didn't, but Judge Boyle, applying Rule 56 the way he's supposed to, found that he did, and he spotted them the suspension. I don't think that most large poultry plants will suspend people with three words of see you Monday, particularly following a meeting in which they have erased a number of his unexcused absences in order to allow him to continue to work. And this is a little bit indirect, but jumping all the way to the greater weight argument that I believe Council is making. First of all, I think you're correct, Judge, in saying that they're trying to somehow bypass this third step of ultimate burden of proof in McDonnell Douglas by making it to the employer's duty to persuade immediately, no, 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 we, we did this for a legitimate reason. And moreover, we're, we're right. And then so the analysis is. Are we, are we there.
0: applying McDonnell Douglas here or are we applying a North Carolina specific?
4: Well, that's a very good question, Your Honor, and the judges we're hoping you got a very good answer. Well, I I think because the North Carolina Courts of Appeals apply the McDonnell Douglas burden shifting standard in Rita cases, have a very recent decision from twenty twenty three, Sloan uh versus um Moxville, and the district courts certainly apply it, and there's a decision two weeks ago, uh Malik versus um Amazon, and I can provide sites to those for you if you wish.
0: Oh, is there a substantive difference between the two?
4: No, I don't think so, Your Honor, because McDonnell Douglas is uh, – it's, 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 it's really more of an analytical tool that the Supreme Court uh, has devised and has been widely used um, all over the country to deal with this flood of, of discrimination and retaliation lawsuits that have come in from the employment area into the federal courts. It's a it's a it's an analytical tool because it helps allocate the relative burdens of proof. And it should be the plaintiff who has the ultimate burden of proof on a retaliation retaliation or discrimination suit because this is not something that you win by default if the other party can't prove it. But moving to that, I think we do have by in spades the greater weight of the evidence here that we were trying to keep Mr. Vines employed and not get rid of him. First of all, the discussion about March 11, he worked one day after five weeks of absence and claimed that his back hurt and that he came back a few days later with a a doctor's excuse. Um, It is not supported in the record at all that the job that he was assigned to when he returned for that March 11 day was involved heavy lifting. He does not say that in the pages that are cited in the, um, appellant and the apple appellate's brief. the leg quarters are the little things you get from Kentucky Fried Chicken. These, you know, it's the thigh
3: and the drumstick.
4: It's not, it's I not mean, a burdensome job. He does,
3: he does say in the deposition that he, he had to pick up something heavy. Um, now there's not a description of what it is, exactly how it works, but I mean, you can't dispute that he, he says that in his deposition. I was a little confused about the relocation because it seemed like, there's this early March memo, March 7th memo saying he's he's going to be moved to the greater position. But then I guess he he didn't come back to work until Monday. Instead of greater, it was the leg quarters position. Um, there seems to be a little confusion in the arguments about where he was relocated to. Can you help me sort that out?
4: Well, yes, and I think that comes down to the poultry industry. And the way these lines work, people are moved around to different positions based on what positions need to be filled on a given day. And uh, not everybody works the same job, and we don't certainly have, you know, entitlements or specific bidding for specific positions on a line where everyone is working together in a process to produce, you know, to go from birds to, to the freezer. Uh, so it may have been that the position that he was given to try that one day he returned was not the permanent greater position, but it's entirely possible that the greater position was already filled and they didn't want to dislodge somebody else to move him into it. Now, they did try to work very hard with him to get what he needed, and he talks about needing particular um, respiratory things. If, if you look in the OSHA, well, I think it is in the, in the record, actually, OSHA prescribes um, a mask and gloves for people who work with uh dry ice and he was he was given those things but but to return to the greater weight which i think really does matter here because that's what it, it comes down to at the end of the day they never he just failed to disclose his neuropathy when he was hired the reason they have these medical questionnaires is to find out what kind of jobs people can do and how to how to utilize them best so that they can be successful they didn't just Discipline or, or discharge him for that they tried to find him a new position that he could work. It was the dry ice one. It didn't work out. He tried, you know, he had absences that he accrued, he said, because he was ill. They had been recorded initially as unexcused absences. He had this meeting with the upper management in the conference room to, to talk about what was going on and how they could make things work better. They erased some of his absences, took him at his word that they
3: should have been excused and not unexcused. Do you agree that he wasn't terminated for violating the attendance policy? No, I do not. I think he was. I mean, Judge
4: Boyle is interesting in his decision. We certainly argued that that was the reason for his termination with absenteeism and exhaustion of leave. It's hard to parse these two different kinds of absences because they both, at the end of the day, end up to somebody not being there to work. Now, Mount Air never said no to him for a single
3: request for. So was that a was that a stated reason uh, when he was terminated? Uh, the company told him he was one of the reasons was because he violated the attendance policy.
4: Well, he'd also exhausted leave.
3: The, the, so did, uh, the, did they tell him that he was fired for uh, violating the attendance policy?
4: I don't know if it was specifically the attendance policy, but exhausting your leave is a component of attendance because again, they all boil down to your, whether you're there or not to do the job.
3: I thought part of it was this, that they didn't have jobs for and they didn't have the light duty jobs.
4: Well, no, you're correct about that. That was an additional reason and Judge, um, Judge Boyle did
2: address that as well. Uh, Excuse me, Ms. Stormy. Mount Air gave different reasons. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. And different dates for ending the employment. Did it not? And how do we factor that in?
4: I don't think they gave different reasons as much as they had multiple reasons for terminating his employment. The very last day after March 11 when he came in and he requested light duty, which was not available. Again, they have restricted duty for people with workers' compensation, uh, who are on workers' compensation and that that's not light duty. It's a, there, there is a distinction between those two things. But when he came in that day, they were, they went, they were going to initially grant him an additional period of leave because he said his back hurt. And so the benefits supervisor went to look on, you know, to see whether he would be eligible for additional leave for that purpose. And that was when they discovered that he had exhausted the 240 hours of personal leave that they allow employees who were in their first year of work, as was Mr. Vines, and are not eligible for FMLA-type leave. So, you know, at the, at the end of the day, Mr. Vines worked one 4.65 hours for every one hour he took of leave. And then, and this isn't in the decision, but it is in the record, he was marked eligible for reemployment at the end. And I submit that these are not the actions of an employer bent on retaliation. They could have terminated him for not disclosing a medical condition when he was hired. They could have terminated him for excessive absences Early on, when he exceeded the limit, they could have terminated him for um, exhaustion of leave later, and they could have said, "Sorry, we don't have light duty for you here," and they could have said, "Don't come back and bother us again." But they didn't do any of those things. They granted his every request for leave. They noted that he would be eligible for reemployment if he could come if he cared to come back and apply. And I think record? that is very much the greater weight of the evidence that there was no discriminatory or retaliatory motive. And at the end of the day, it is the plaintiff's burden to prove that to the court rather than just say, well, it's a default situation. And I said they retaliated against me and they didn't sufficiently explain that they didn't. So I went.
2: OK, um, does the record show uh, who made the decision to relocate him on March 11th?
4: I don't believe that it does because these decisions are often made on the floor as opposed to in the HR room of deciding who's going to do what position on a particular day. Um, you know, okay. the jobs in the poultry plant are all fairly difficult. Um, but, you know, sometimes people move around and he, he he tried this new position for exactly one day and then didn't come back. And that was after he had been out of work for five weeks. And understandably, it's going to be a bit of an adjustment when you come back to work after being out that long and have to be in a new environment again. Um, Judge Boyle, I think, did an excellent job in his decision. He, he, he resolved all doubts that, uh, you know, all disputed facts in favor of the, uh, in favor of the plaintiff, as he was supposed to. Uh, I disagreed with some of that, as I said before. But you know, in the end of the day, he he did come to the conclusion, and I think he's absolutely correct that when Bides, who undisputably had a lot of absences, was bound to have exceeded, you know, engaged in an ex- excessive absenteeism, and when it was determined that he had exhausted all of the leave that the company generously allows its employees, even when they're not entitled to any leave, um, that those were bona fide reasons for the decision to terminate his employment, and uh, even then they were willing to have him back.
0: So this talk to us for just a minute about the alternate uh, basis for dismissal on suspension claim, lack of jurisdiction.
4: Your Honor, I have to say, I'm not all that familiar with with that um, that aspect of it. Okay. I do think that the, um, you know, I wouldn't concede that he's made a prima facie case, but Judge Boyle spotted him for it, and I think that was the right thing to do under the circumstances. Um,
0: so what else do you have for us today?
4: Um I'm willing to answer any more questions. Although I would, your your comment does make me think about the line from the uh, I think it was the Supreme Court. I can't remember the exact case, but where the judge said that we don't federal courts aren't asked to sit as super personnel departments and make you know second guess the decisions that are made by every person HR department. Um, the ones here, I think, were utterly defensible and uh, certainly. I think Mount Air bent over backwards to try to keep Mr. Vines employed and, again, indicated that they would have him back. So these are not, you know, at the end of the day, it's the plaintiff's burden to prove that we discriminated or retaliated against him, and I just don't think they can do it.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Ms. Dormier. Ms. Ripley, you've got some rebuttal time.
4: Thank you, Your Honor.
1: Um I think above all else, Ms. Dormier's argument about the facts has demonstrated that that there are a lot of genuine disputed facts in this case, making it not appropriate for summary judgment. It's also confusing the facts a little bit. Um, so I'd like to clarify on the retaliatory reassignment, which we allege was what happened on March 11th. If you look at um, both Mr. Vines's deposition testimony, but also his supervisor, Ms. Campbell, this JA 576 is the part of her depot I wrote down, but she explains that he was assigned to a permanent greater position prior to March 11th. The March 11th position was not the permanent greater position. There was, there's a disagreement between the parties about whether Mr. Vines's meeting with upper management that Ms. Dormany explained occurred on February 25th as Mr. Vines and Ms. Campbell allege or occurred on March now, what's, 6th.
0: What's the evidence that that going to that last position was in some way retaliatory.
1: The, the memo that Ms. Richardson um, wrote on March 7th that says Mr. Vines should be assigned to a, a permanent greater position to accommodate his neuropathy. And it's yes, I am arguing that... How
0: does that prove your case?
1: I think it proves that they knew Mr. Vines had a um, had some medical issues and needed an easier position. He, he is an older man. It's in the record, too. He calls himself slow, an older man. And because of that, they were thinking, let's just put him on an easier position, like a the permanent.
3: says uh, disclosure of issues with his feet due to neuropathy. He'll no longer be allowed to work in the tower. He'll be assigned a permanent grader. So Correct. that's what you're relying on is the issues with his feet due to neuropathy. It's what they thought as evidence of their knowledge that he needed
1: an easier position instead of this leg quarter's position. The other thing is Ms. Dormity just gave y'all an explanation for why he was moved
0: why does that amount is, so he has a day where he's not in this permanent grader, but he's still how does that amount to retaliation?
1: So he was moved out of the department he'd been in, tenders. His supervisor, Ms. Campbell, was not given any explanation for that. Mount Air has not given any explanation for that, except for the one Ms. Dormany just gave.
3: deposition, Ms. Campbell says, I think he he had complained about working with me, and so he was moved out of my department.
4: Yes, you are correct. I do believe
1: Ms. Campbell said that in her deposition. I haven't seen that in Mount Air's um, explanation for the relocation now. Um, so I, I think there is enough evidence there for a jury to decide why they moved him. They... I think they could easily conclude they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him somewhere else.
0: Um, All you've got is he worked this job this day. He worked this job another day. I'm just not seeing how you're connecting the dots that that move is a retaliatory act.
1: Well, there's the temporal connection, too. I mean, the OSHA inspected March 6th, March 5th, excuse me. March 6th is when he was suspended. He was out Thursday, Friday, March 7th and 8th. His first day back was March 11th. So there is a clear temporal proximity to the yeah, ocean. He doing
0: dry ice then,
1: right? Correct. They moved him off. They moved him off the of dry ice back at February 25th. Um, I wanted to back to the um Court of Appeals decisions and McDonnell Douglas because um I believe Ms. Dorminy has misrepresented um how widespread the use of McDonnell Douglas is. The, the case that kind of started it in the courts of appeals was FATA v. M&M Properties in 2012. And it cites to, um, Lilly v. Mastic, which is a 2004 Middle District of North Carolina case, um, for the proposition that they can use MCDONALD Douglas. And what Lilly had said was the North Carolina courts have held that plaintiffs may generally rely on the evidentiary standards employed in federal dis- discrimination cases to establish Rita. Lily cited to another case called Wiley v. UPS, and there's two Wiley v. UPSs here. This is the Middle District of North Carolina one from 1999. And what that case said is that the North Carolina Supreme Court has recognized federal decisions can offer guidance in establishing evidentiary standards, citing to Ables v. Renfro, which is the case I told you all earlier, is the North Carolina Supreme Court case from the 90s that specifically declined to use McDonnell Douglas. So FATA has been um, the twenty twelve North Carolina Court of Appeals case has been cited multiple times, including some of the recent decisions that Ms. Dorminey referred to, um, several of which are unpublished, for this proposition that we use McDonnell Douglas for Rita. But if you trace FATA back to Lily, to Wiley, to Abel's, you see there was a mistake at the origin. And um Abel's has been. I think, miscited for this proposition when it actually specifically declined to use McDonnell Douglas. But again, even if we are using McDonnell Douglas, even if Mr. Vines um, has to show that the, the, the we're reaching that third step on pretext, what his burden is is to present evidence that rises above speculation that the stated reasons from Mount Air weren't their real reasons, that it was actually due to his protected activity, If he offers circumstantial evidence to discredit those proffered, non-discriminatory reasons, it should be decided by a trier of fact. Actually, I think Ms. Dormany highlighted several of the disputed issues when when she was telling you the various reasons he might have been terminated. They have changed their reasons for terminating him over and over again in the paperwork, um, including revising their termination record from April 17th, which said he was terminated for attendance or tardiness, or it was a voluntary medical resignation, and revising that exact document on May 3rd to say that it was because he didn't return from leave. None of those are the reasons that they argued in their briefing as their legitimate reasons or their affirmative defense for terminating him. Um, This court has acknowledged that constantly changing reasons for termination can be evidence of pretext. It is also acknowledged in Calgill, I don't have the full site in front of me right now, but that um if the plaintiff can point to facts that if believed would allow the trier of fact to conclude that the employer was simply looking for an excuse to get rid of him that that can be evidence of pretext as well and we think that mr. Vines has pointed to ample facts to support that kind of conclusion as well I see I'm out of time do you have any more questions
0: thank you very much we appreciate the argument of both counsel I ask the uh Clerk to adjourn court, signy die. We'll come down and greet counsel, and then once the courtroom's cleared, we'll reconvene.
1: This honorable court stands adjourned, signy die. God save the United States and this honorable court.